Hey everybody, this is Dr. Drew B. And I'm here to welcome you to my podcast, Ikigai Leadership. We're going to be talking to leaders in all different industries from all different backgrounds and demographics from all over the world. And we'll be discussing topics like leadership development, culture, DEI, content creation, and marketing, and all things business and entrepreneurship. Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of Ikigai Leadership. My name is Drew B. Harlow, and I'm here today with Dr. Dorothy A. Martin Neville. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to have you here and talk to you about, about the work you do because you're also a business and executive coach, but your approach is a little bit different from most. So do you want to say a little more about that and, and who you are? Because I spent 20 something years as a psychotherapist in private practice, as well as being a pioneer in integrative healthcare here in the United States. What I do is combine the depth of knowledge I have around health and psychology and how leadership is impacted by their belief systems, by how they hold their stress, by their understanding of leadership, their understanding of who they are theoretically supposed to be. And when you move into levels of self-betrayal or levels of confusion, you may be in transition. Where am I going? What am I going to do? And as a leader, you can create all kinds of illusions about what you should be doing and where you should go and all of this. And that ends up not only impacting the effectiveness of your leadership, it impacts your health emotionally, spiritually, and physically so that you don't get to bring the best of you to the table. Yeah. And I think that last part is the part that people don't necessarily connect the dots on, right? It affects your physical health. We tend to prioritize physical health over other types of health, which is interesting in our society. You know, I think now it's kind of coming around a little more where mental health is becoming more of a focus. But frankly, it's, it's become an excuse in a lot of times sometimes because how do you measure mental health, right? There's no like uh, objective way to measure, measure mental health in, in terms of like being like, oh, you're or even pain, right? It's like you're, it's, it's, your pain is at a, at a five. Well, hers is at a five too, but you guys might have different thresholds for pain. And how do you, how do you talk to people with, with, with that kind of feeling about that? For me, what I look at is what's your functionality? If you're emotionally healthy and, and we all have stuff, I don't care who we are, we all have stuff, mm-hmm. you know, we'll have stuff to the day we pass. Yep. However, for some of us, we are working so hard not to see our stuff that we spend our days pushing through it, thinking we are functioning well. And yet when you're working with people, they can see how quickly you go into defense, how quickly you go into rage or push and will and and or collapse. And although you think it's not impacting you, it's having a huge impact. So to me, when I see somebody emotionally healthy, I see them and I have recordings I've done on emotional intelligence, you know, because I truly believe in this. When I see somebody emotionally healthy, what I see is their ability to own their own stuff, to say, God, I blew it. Sorry about that. Let's, let's regroup and go over this again, come up with it. Or I might have made a mistake. Tell me, what, do, what are your thoughts on this? And can we look at this and do this differently? Because there's a sense of who the, the I am. When you're emotionally healthy, you have, or mental health, you have a sense of the I am. It's far from perfect, but you know what it is. You can define it. You recognize the strengths as well as the limitations. You're not humiliated by the limitations. You own them. And so that they don't become an energy drain on you. I love that because I always say that the worst kind of leaders are the insecure leaders, right? The ones who have that in the back of their heads, like, oh, I can't, I can't do anything wrong, right? Sometimes it's imposter syndrome. Sometimes it's just basic insecurity. 
but either way it comes it manifests poorly with your team with your with the people you manage with the people you you're supposed to be inspiring and you're right yeah it, it's it's disheartening in some ways but it's also it's something that we can look at and which is why i love the fact that you're doing this and connecting that connecting that dot in a, in a very uh, very like direct way because i haven't done that in, with my clients really in, in terms of the I, I kind of i won't say i shy away from i do some somatic work but i don't do, go as deeply as you do right like you actually connect the dot and say this is a physical manifestation of your stress of your insecurities and when you work with folks how does that manifest for you like how what's the process like when you work with someone and, and talking to them this kind of thing with that. Well, a potential client who called last week, we're going to have another conversation next week. He called me up. He's been in an industry he couldn't stand for 26 years. He hasn't liked it since the day he graduated from college, but it was a theoretically good industry and it was going to provide wealth for him and his family. I was going to say, is it law? Because it might be law. And so I had had a couple of those. And so what happens is that he doesn't like it at all. And at one point his company was downsizing and he was let go and he grabbed the first thing he could, which is the same business again, which he still didn't like. And what ended up happening, he was out of work for about a month and a half. And in that month and a half, he went through so much self-hatred about being a failure because a man's supposed to provide for his family. So he failed as a man. Those belief systems, I failed as a man, which we won't even get into the cultural ridiculousness of that concept, but that's there. All right. I failed as a man. Therefore, I have no value or worth. All the self-hatred comes up. All the insecurities come up. The stress literally gets held in the whole prostate area. And because it's around his manliness, his manhood. And he ended up two months later, you know, going in for issues around prostate cancer. And so when I said to him, you know, how was your health record? And he said to me, well, I have had prostate cancer. And I said, were you ever laid off or fired? He said, well, yes. And I said, so when did the prostate cancer show up? He said, a few months after I was laid off. Why? Is there a connection? I said, yeah, there definitely is a connection. So let's talk about what's going on in your life right now. And he said, I'm fully aware that I could do this for 10 more years and take early retirement, but I don't know that I'll live 10 more years. So I need out. Okay, now we can talk because in working with him, if he chooses to come on, one obviously as as a specialist in transition, I will help him begin to see that this time, what does he want to move into? What is going to make him feel alive? What is going to make him feel Yes, highly productive. Many of us are driven by being productive, by by doing something of value, um, making this world a better place. So what can he do that would make him feel excited to get up in the morning and go do whatever that is he's doing? And in addition to that, help him develop the life skills as well as the business skills needed because it's going to be outside of his realm. He doesn't like what he does, so it'll be outside of it. But it's looking at how that stress is held. It's based on belief systems. It's based on expectations that are frequently very unrealistic. And so let's look at it because how you hold your stress is what impacts your health. And how you hold your stress depends on your belief systems. I like the fact that it was a male example because I think there's always a lot of talk about around self-care around women, right? And there's not as much self-care talk around among men, I feel like. And there was... For better or for worse, I watched this show called Love is Blind with my fiance. It's as bad as it sounds sometimes, but it is entertaining in some ways. <laughs> there was, though, one episode, and those, they're, they're little nuggets in that show 
And I'm deviating for a moment. So, but the reason I called that out is because there was one one scene with between uh, two guys, and they're both African American. They both are talking through dealing with the, with their respective uh, significant others, and they were just they're having a very honest and frank conversation about the stress about what they're dealing with and how they were trying to trying to deal with it. And one of them said to the other one, he's like, "Hey, I, I want to thank you for having this conversation with me because I, I don't really talk to like like this with my boys." Like I, he's like, I don't, it's not normalized for people like us to talk like this, you know? And that's probably one of the best moments in the whole season. It was like a throwaway moment in like, you know, whatever. But, but going back to what you said about the culture aspect of, around that, and, and it, it's very, it's very interesting that, that the topic that comes up with, with this physical manifestation of stress and whatnot, it was, the example was, was a man and dealing with these kind of things, because I feel like there's not as many outlets for us. Right. As, as, and, and it's not as, as okay for men to be not okay. Yeah. There's this unrealistic expectation that you're going to have it all together at all times and you can take charge of everything, make everything work perfectly and still be in a really great mood and loving and gentle to everybody all the time. And let's do a reality check. Nobody can do that, man or woman. Nobody can do that. And what I have found is that frequently when men get super stressed, their first thought is, I'm just going to go to the gym. Yeah. I'm just going to go and work out. Or, or, I'm gonna or drink. Run. Yeah, I'll drink. Yeah. <laughs> drink a drug. And, and then they go and what's actually happening is they've learned how to avoid it. So theoretically, they're letting the stress out, which works marvelously for a bit of time, half an hour, an hour, whatever that case may be. But as soon as they get back and they take the shower and they go to the office, zing, they're right back to, you know, so yeah, you had a great hour, but, but what did you change? You know, I'm all for working out, you know, I'm on my treadmill every morning and, and doing what I need to do. However, that's to keep us, that's a maintenance piece. That's not a growth piece. The growth piece is what is going on? What is the belief system that is setting you up? to have this kind of stress. And when I speak to folks in corporate, because I work with entrepreneurs as well as those in corporate, when I speak to them, it's that you have no idea the levels of stress they put on us. I do, and I realize it's absolutely ridiculous. However, how you take it in is really what this is all about. How you take it in and what you do with it. Because when you can come to a place where you see what you're doing as part of your life purpose. And I don't care if you're in insurance or you're in manufacturing. Is there a way in your belief system, in your value system, you can see that what you are doing is about making this world a better place? If you know that you're providing life insurance, I say that because I'm in Connecticut and we have the, theoretically the insurance capital of the world here. You know, so you're in life insurance, not the most exciting industry. But if you can see that you're helping those when they're in their greatest period of need and you're supporting them, then you're going into the office, no matter what you're doing, there's a wonderful objective at the end of the, the end of the tunnel for this one. Well, you know, it could be manufacturing. I'm helping make the world a better place. I'm making cars safer. It doesn't matter what it is. How can you do that? And if you can't, why are you in that industry? What are you doing in the industry? And maybe you need to go elsewhere. And um, it could be I'm in, I'm in leadership because I want to help develop great teams. I want to help develop the people behind me. Well, fantastic. Now you've found something that feeds you. 
and you've got all this pressure coming in, but you know what feeds you and you keep doing what you can while you're doing it. And it's recognizing that when we go into, I'm not good enough and I have to push harder. I'm not good enough and I have to do this. Or in Western culture, we've got such an expectation on catastrophe. If I don't get this client, I'm going to lose my house. If I don't get this, I'm going to lose my family. If I don't get it, really take a deep breath. Is that honestly the truth? Is that honestly the truth? So the stories create the stress that makes me have to get it. And it's like, whoa, now you don't see clearly. You're not available to yourself. You're not available to your family. And then what ends up happening, affairs start coming into play. So now the affairs come into play because you have a few minutes of an outlet where you can let stress go that's different than the gym. But now where's your value system? Now where's the fear of being caught? Now where is all the other? So you've just found another way to create stress. Yeah, I had this conversation yesterday with, with, with some people about this, about exactly that, right? That making things bigger than they are, this is a story we create. We weave these amazing stories that that just don't, they're just not true, right? They don't serve us and they're not true. You know, I remember I remember being in high school and applying for for colleges, right? This is back when they had the paper application, you have to write, write it out and then mail it in. And <laughs> and everyone, people are like, writing? What do you, what, what do you, what's this writing you speak of? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was stressful at the time, right? I had to get these get all these essays written and whatnot, and like you know, printed out and, and attached to these things. And I remember my parents, and you know, they did the best they could with, with what they knew. They 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 weren't like intentionally trying to do to do harm to my mental health. But looking back, like they didn't know any better. They were just like, "You got to do it. You got to get done. You got we got to get it done." And like just kept going with it, and whatever else I had to do for school and whatever. At the time, it felt like the end of the world. It's like, oh my God, if I don't get this application in, I'm never going to amount to anything in my life. I'm, my whole life is going to go to hell. And then you look back and you're like, that didn't fucking matter. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what the hell? Like, I mean, so I would have gotten to college a year later. Yeah, all my friends were going or whatever, like, you know, a semester later or something, you know, like worst case. And that's probably the, really the worst case that would have happened, right? Right. And, and when you look at basic life skills, the reality is, you probably wanted to get that application done and you wanted to meet your friends at seven and you needed to do something else at nine. What if as an adult, we say, okay, if I can't meet my friends at seven or go to this place at nine, my priority is getting this done. I now can relax and get this done. I've got all night to do this and I can do it. But that hopefully by the time you're moving into positions of leadership, you can say, okay, I've got eight things on my plate. But if I focus on this one thing, in peace, I can get this one thing done. And the reality is, if you keep all the stress of the eight other things that are going on, you're taking twice as long to do it. So this isn't about helping you become irresponsible. Do that one thing, get it out of the way, and then sit back and what can you do with the rest? You know, and find out what works for you. There's no one right way to do this. For myself, if I've got eight things on my plate, I start with the easiest because I know if I get four or five of those easy things done, and sometimes it's 10 minutes on something, if I get four or five of those easiest ones, I feel like I'm on a roll. So that energy of I'm on a roll makes the theoretically more difficult ones easier because I'm on a roll. My attitude going into it isn't like, oh crap, this is going to be something else altogether. And then I'm exhausted before I start. And my mindset is like closing in rather than expanding to make it easier. 
hundred percent. And I think one of the bigger issues that come up, come up for a lot of leaders, especially in toxic environments where they don't identify as a toxic environment is that they don't have that space to prioritize, right? Everything is a fire. Everything is a priority one. And I tell people, all, I, I, I tell people all the time, if everything's a priority one, nothing's a priority one, right? If your boss is constantly telling you that everything is a priority one, they have no idea how to prioritize, first of all. <laughs> and second of all, nothing's a priority one then. Because if, if you get five priority one things at the same time that are not actually priority one things, which frankly, almost nothing is a priority one thing in reality, then which one do you do first? How do you do You can't work at all of them at the same time. To your point, you can't do, you can't even work on that, that let me work on this first, get this built up momentum wise, and then roll into the next thing. Because everything is always, it's like, oh, you're working on this one thing, then you get pinged about the second thing. And it's like, okay, well, um, how many things can I do at the same time, right? And, and we as humans really, really can't multitask. We can't, and we get overwhelmed, which makes us incapable of doing anything well, which is why, and, and I do know that when the boss has five things and he, and he wants he or she wants it all by five, I can't do all of them by five. But what I'm going to do is do a really phenomenal job at maybe two or three of the five. And I'll, you can have them in and it's going to be done. Now, yep, it's after five o'clock, but listen, you got these three and let's deal. And yeah, you can't become your boss's boss, but you really can say, listen, you gave me the five. I've got this much time, realistically. And his or her inability to deal with stress impacts everybody beneath them, which is why for me, being able to work with the leaders to allow them to begin to see the, the insanity that gets developed. It's how unproductive it is and also how much illness develops as a result of it. Not just for the leader who keeps pushing this down the chain, but all the people down the chain. Now you've got all of these folks out, either with surgeries or if it's minor, they may have a flu and they're not pretending. They are so darn sick they can't get out of bed because the stress is impacting their immune system. Yeah, or gives or gives them migraines or direct like direct issues, right? Like shoulder pain. I used to go to a massage therapist. She the way she categorized it was very or illustrated it to me was very interesting. She's like stress and emotions in general are like food for your body, but so it depends on on, on how you process it, right? And where you store it, they get stored just like fat. And I'm like, that's interesting because she's like rubbing my shoulder and there's like this huge knot and it was hurting like hell. And she was like, yeah, this is where you store all of your stress. Like this spot right here is, is, is just so hard and, and almost calcified how hard it is right now. But think about if you integrate that knowledge and because she's, she's completely correct. I had one client too. She had two girls, two daughters, and one, all this shoulder was always this particular daughter and this shoulder was this particular daughter. And when she finally recognized it, that it was starting to tighten up, I'd say, okay, so what's going on with her? Oh, nothing of any great deal. Well, yeah, this isn't acute yet. What's going on? that has you stressed. And the fact is we all do. Some of us, when we get highly stressed, we get migraines. Some get strep throats, some get diverticulitis. Others, it's the lower back that goes out for you with the shoulder. We all have developed patterns based on our belief systems. You know, right shoulder is really beliefs around all the responsibilities you carry, your inability to carry the, the burdens you've got on your shoulders. And my first thought in working with you, if I was, was why is that a burden? Why are you perceiving that as a burden to start with? And then if it is more for you to handle, let's talk about how you could deal with it. 
who can you bring in to support you? What else can you do with this? But basically, what's the belief system you have all these burdens on your shoulder? Because that's generally not the truth. It's the filter through which you see things. Everything becomes a burden. You know, for some people, being in a relationship is a burden because God puts so much stress on you. How do you do this? What am I going to do? I can't do anything right. And so just thinking about the relationship, you feel stressed. Like, what if we changed how you saw that relationship? What if we changed how you saw home ownership? Home ownership is exhausting. There's so much work. Let's take a deep breath. Let's back up a moment. What if you hired somebody to do the lawn and you didn't have to do it? You know, or what if, let's look at how you can do these things without that belief system, without that, because changing that belief system changes the, how you hold the stress in your body, which changes your physical health. You know, my doctoral dissertation was on the psychological and spiritual causes of physical disease and disorders. And I received NIH grant funding to do my work with that. We picked fibromyalgia, which was the disease of the moment, because diseases literally are cyclical, depends on the stress in the culture. All of a sudden, people throughout the country develop that particular disease. And, you know, we have all these tendencies that are coming up now. People under 30 are becoming far more diseased with cancer disease-based with cancer than previously. What's the stress is on folks under 30? So again, there's a cyclical element of what's happening in our culture. And how do you deal with stress? Because some, some develop bladder disorders when they're highly stressed. Bladder is fear and an inability to protect somebody else. I'm making this very simple because it's a much more extensive thing, but to make it simple, it's in Eastern thought the water element, which is kidney bladder, is about fear. And some people, when they get highly stressed, do panic attacks. Some people highly stressed develop bladder infections. And that's about an inability to protect people they love. Kidney disorders, inability to protect myself. They usually happen when you're frightened of being laid off or when you're getting a divorce or when you're being asked to move to another state. Fear on an inability to protect myself. Somehow you get a kidney infection. Think oh, it must have been something I ate. No. <laughs> yeah, my fr- actually one of my best friends when he's going through his divorce, he got kidney stones, and it's, it's mm-hmm. something where it's, it's that's fascinating, and it's also uh, going into the spiritual for a second. You know, the I, and I love that intersection that you have there, and between those those three things, right? The, the physical, the emotional, and the and and the spiritual, because what you're talking about, the stuff, the stuff you're describing, and the symptoms, especially with, with the the different manifestations in the body align very closely with the chakras, right? Right, absolutely. It's so fascinating that, that these kinds of things were studied and documented thousands of years ago, right? And they're now kind of coming back up nowadays, you know? And even things like the, like the Egyptians, you know, studying the fact that the heart was a little bit to the left as opposed to being the center of the body, right? But it's just fascinating how, how much of that is coming to to fruition. And obviously, you know, you have Eastern medicine also gets a bad rep some ways because people tend to be like, oh, I'm not going to use Western medicine at all. I'm going to go do Eastern medicine. And then they end up, you know, still being sick or whatever might happen. But I wonder if the answer is somewhere in between. I believe when we make enemies, whether it's of medical systems, whether it's of anything else, we've created problems that don't need to exist. Western medicine, to, to use it in that term, is fantastic for acute disorders that's acute. If you break your leg, it's great to go to the hospital, get it reset. 
and get it checked out. Okay. I mean, I shouldn't get a T for that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and pray, but uh, but it, and I believe in power of prayer. But let's do reality here. But then, when it comes to Eastern medicine, it's a phenomenal approach to maintenance. It's a phenomenal approach to creating health. To create health and maintenance is is with the Eastern component. Western medicine is wonderful for acute care in a crisis in an emergency go in, you don't have time to do any emotional, spiritual reassessment. Go in and deal with the problem immediately. Then once you've dealt with it, now let's step back and do the emotional and spiritual assessment so that we can prevent a reoccurrence, so that we can support you going forward and getting back into full health again, you know? But all of this comes down to the stress that that crisis we were talking about is, is really about the adrenals. The adrenals are here to support us in an emergency. But when everything in life is an emergency, because if I don't get this, I'm gonna lose my job. If I don't get it, I'm gonna lose my house. If I don't get this, I'm gonna lose. All right, so when it, I'm in a crisis. And when the adrenals start to become depleted, energetically, they take from the immune system. And the immune system then starts feeding the adrenals so you can stay in survival mode which then makes you vulnerable to any bacteria, any virus, anything that's out here. It also then begins to cause distortion biochemically and distortions in, in cellular formation because cells are always being recreated in your body, dying and being recreated, you know? So all of that stress impacts this recreation and we end up with all of these diseases. So let's go back to not draining the adrenals, which means not living in crises and high stress, which strengthens the immune system and things are different. If you look at all kinds of different cultures, what are the diseases or lack of diseases in different cultures? In some of the islands in, in Greece and other places, people live to well over 100 without any major diseases. Why? Why does that happen? Why do people in the Caribbean have these diseases and not have other diseases. People in Tibet have these diseases and not other diseases. So let's look at what's happening in the culture. What are the belief systems for the people in those cultures? And then you're going to discover why there are certain disease patterns in different cultures. Yeah, I like the distinction. And I, I like that distinction as well as the distinction about between the the, the acute conditions versus the, the longer term kind of proactive slash maintenance conditions, right? I mean, that's something that I don't think a lot of people, I haven't heard that distinction like that before. And I think it's an interesting one because it's something that we don't think about in this in this country a lot, right? Which is that maintenance, maintenance for us is you're on Xanax, good to go, you're solid, right? <laughs> you know, or you're on, you're on this diabetic medication, you know, you're taking insulin on a regular basis or whatever. Like it's not, it's not an idea of let's figure out how we can make it so you don't need medication, right? Or so you don't need to get to that point where, you, where you're where you dealing with medication. It's like, oh, I'll just take a pill for that. Also, and as you see, you can be on high blood pressure meds. You can be on diabetic medications. However, you can also get off of them. And I'm not saying you make that choice. I just don't feel like taking them when I'm done. But you can, you can lose that weight. You can get in shape. You can change your belief systems that create diabetes, all right? High blood pressure. You can learn to deal with stress. 
again, losing weight, working out, learning how to deal with stress can eliminate high blood pressure. And people will say to me, but it's, but it's genetic. My whole family has it. Yes. Let's look at the belief systems your whole family has, because the reality is if both your parents are diabetic and they have five children, statistically, we know two or three of those kids are going to develop diabetes. So what's the variable of the other two that don't get it? And the reality is if you look at the home of the three kids that got it, they eat the same way their parents do. They have the same political beliefs as their parents. They have the same worldview as their parents. Look at the two that don't have it. They have dramatically different belief systems and lifestyles than the parents in their three siblings that have developed the diabetes. That's not coincidental. You know, so pre preconditions don't ever need to be actualized. Yeah, they're genetic preference. They're not like a guarantee, right? Um, lifestyle make, does make a difference. I mean, for me, I have diabetes. My parents are not diabetic, thankfully, but on both sides of my family, my grandparents are diabetic, right? I have uncles and aunts on both sides who are diabetic. And so I am I actually had diabetes a few years ago, but uh, I had an amazing doctor. And luckily she worked with me and was like, look, I'm going to get you on a medication short term so, so, so you can get off, but we'll, here's, we'll, let's make a plan to get you back to being healthy. And work our butts off and I, I had to go to the gym. I had to eat different. I had to do a lot of things for like a year. And I corrected that. I'm not saying I'm on the, the pinnacle of health or anything like that, but I'm just saying like, it's possible to reverse those conditions. Right. I don't think people understand that. And, and I, I think a lot of doctors don't, don't even understand that or say that to people, which is frustrating because it's just, there's more money in a, in, in a treatment than there is in a cure. Right. Well, and there's more money in pharmaceuticals than not. All right. And I'm not making enemies out there. This isn't about enemies or ill intent. It's just the reality is that when we take ownership for how we, our lifestyle, but also our belief systems, when you live in hate or when you live in resentment or the illusions of victimization, what ends up happening is that you suppress everything in your body. When you begin to recognize stress, and we, you know, this was about talking about leaders, that when they begin to recognize that every single one of us on this planet has a spiritual purpose, everybody on this planet is here for reason, and and it's to make the world a better place. And in doing so, when we do that, we're fed, just as. When you stop being completely stressed running down the street and say New York City, just because I'm close to New York, and you stop and help somebody who fell, not only do you feel good about you, you allow them to feel good that there's somebody out here to support them. And all of a sudden, think of what that does to your body. Think of what that does to the dopamine. Think of what that does to everything because you stopped long enough to open your heart. You stopped long enough to be present to the humanity around you what ends up happening is you feel good about you, which says to me that we're all intrinsically holy good souls. But some of us choose to live under the stress of false expectations. Some of us choose to, to, not consciously, but choose to live in fear. And when we live in fear, we either go to collapse, which is depression and, and other disorders, or we go to rage and that's other disorders or this extreme competitiveness. Now we end up with strokes, we end up with heart attacks, we end up with those disorders. So really how we live, whether it's in fear and defense 
or to me, the value of meditation or prayer or whatever your faith system is. When we stop in the morning to start our day with, with some meditation or reflection, and we end our day that way, that starts to become a natural way of being for us. And that doesn't mean we're not passionate during the day. We're not excited about things during the day, that we don't have a ball playing sports or playing card games, whatever it is that that excites us. You can do all of that and still be at peace. You can be passionate and at peace. You don't have to be passionate and stress or passionate and rage. You know, so we get to have all that vibrancy, but without the stress, the unhealthy stress. So let me ask you this question. What caused you to do this work? I was doing therapy for about three years with patients, seeing 42 patients a week. And I started noticing that certain patients with certain personalities and belief systems were walking in with prostate cancer or breast cancer or kidney disorders. And when I asked friends who were MDs, have they noticed the personality construct of their patients seemed to be similar? They said, no, no, that's coincidental. Well, when I could predict it, I knew it wasn't. So I then went and became certified in nine modalities of integrative healthcare, nine different approaches to it, you know, reflexology, acupressure, and, and so forth, and many others, and began to see that when I brought that awareness in and could deal with my patients that way, they started changing, their health started changing, their joy started changing, their depression started changing. And even emotionally, I worked with one of the, the men, the first men in Connecticut here who had HIV, and it had just come out, it was in the 80s, it had just come out in across the country, and it had only been in the country about six months. And a patient I'd been working with on depression for about a year came in and said to me, I've only got less than a year to live. I said, really? Why? What's happened? He said, I have HIV, and I have less than a year. I said, we've only known about this for about four to five months in this country. How can somebody predict how long you're going to live? We haven't even known about the disease that long. He said, I know, the doctor just told me that. And I said, so what if you had 20 years to live? What would you do differently? Oh, this is what I would do. Because I'm in insurance. I hate insurance. I want to be a DJ. I would quit my job. He said, and um, my marriage isn't working. I realized I'm gay and I want out. He said, but I don't want to lose my babies, my two boys. So we worked with that. How can he do this? How can he approach this marriage? How can he tell his wife and about the two boys? And it worked out that he got divorced. There was no interruption in his relationship with the kids. And he became a DJ. And over the next 20 years, what ended up happening, this man was so happy, so in love with his life, that he had two in 20 years, two issues that really showed up. He was blind for about three months, some bacterial infection he got, got through that, came through the other side, lived his life so perfectly happy. They ended up with the cocktails, the medicine cocktails that they developed for HIV and lived his life with little to no impact from this disorder and just truly was alive. And he said to me that day when I said to him, what if you're here for the next 20? And he said to me, hey doc, I have no time for depression. I've got too much life to live, I'm done. And literally not once did that man come in depressed for the rest of the time. We didn't work together for 20 years, but the rest of the years we worked together. Not once did that man come in depressed, overwhelmed on occasion but never depressed. He always said, I'm overwhelmed. We got to put this in perspective. Tell me how to do this. And then he went back out again. Even depression, it was like, that's a luxury I can't afford. I've got to live my life because I don't know how much life I've got. 
And the joy that showed up when he became a DJ, the joy that showed up when he left a marriage that wasn't working, all of a sudden, everything in his life changed because of a decision he made. And truly, it's hard for people to believe it can be that simple. Um, I believe life is simple. It's not always easy. But we make it far more complicated than it needs to be. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I definitely think we complicate life a lot of times. Like I said, the stories we tell ourselves, right? And, and it's cultural. It's it's so many different influences in, in, on that side of things. But we can choose to to see a certain path and, and to, to, to see that through. And as you were talking, you know, I couldn't help but think about the, the idea of, of we're all going to die. And, and that's something that, like, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk has, has this video, like, you're going to die, right? Like, I'm going to die, you're going to die, everyone's going to die. And we don't know when, right? We have no idea when it's going to happen. We're assuming it's going to be at a certain point when we're 90 or whatever, <clears throat> but we don't really know, right? It could happen tomorrow. But we live our we live our lives like we're, like, we, like it's like, oh, well, I, I'm going to die when I'm 300 years old. I can just do whatever I want. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, bother caring about what I'm happy doing. I'm just going to slog through this nonsense, you know, just to do it. And I wonder that guy, that perspective that that guy got when he was faced with his mortality, right, is something that I think, you know, traumatizing as it might have been, I'm sure. But I feel like it's a wake-up call we can all use sometimes. That realization or recognition of our mortality the short time that we actually are here on the, on the planet, right? It really does. I've, I've worked with so many folks over the years who have come up with a cancer and they're given a short period to live and somehow they come through it. And they'll say, I'm not the person, I, I would never wish cancer on anybody, but it has changed my life completely. It was a gift I didn't know I needed. Because boy, do I look at life differently. Boy, do I look at my career differently, my family differently. And it's given me an outlook on life I never would have had otherwise. And everything in the world changed because they were faced with their mortality and came out on the other side. And there's so little they take for granted now. There's so little they don't value immensely now because it's all a gift. It is all a gift to us. And when we can step back and realize that from day one, we don't have to go forward. Why Why wait till you have cancer? Why wait till you have HIV? Why wait till those issues show up? What if we really began to see that I have achieved what I have achieved at this moment because of every decision I have made in my life from the time I was six or seven years old without knowing it consciously, I was making a decision to define the person I was going to become and the path I was going to take. And we've done that through every step of it. If we can own that, that where we are isn't by luck. Where we are is because of all the decisions we made. We can walk with the certainty that I've created this life. And the way I explain it to many of my clients is you're sitting in this chair and over there on the other side of the room are all the friends you've had, all the lovers you've had, all the careers you've had, all the jobs you've done, the homes you've lived in, that's all the life you've lived. That's the life you created. You're over here. You are so powerful, you could create that life. And you have the ability, the power to create whatever you want in the rest of that life journey. It's on the other side of the room. That doesn't define who you are. You are so much more than the life you created. And when we can look at that, and we can see that, we recognize that 
these theoretical crises I'm creating in my life, these theoretical difficulties in leadership that I'm creating in my life. Why? Why am I creating these? Why am I looking at it as such? And why am I putting myself in this context that is destroying me? What can I do differently? And that's either reframing where you are or getting out of where you are. But all of it is is just a part of the journey. It's not who you are. And it certainly doesn't define who you are. I love that. And I think that's a good place to pause for the session today. I think that's a good period on that one. With this one caveat, the question I want to ask you, which I prepped you for a little bit, because I, I think we can talk about this for a long time. And I'd love to have you back for session two at some point to talk through more of Anytime. this. Anytime. But the question I want to ask, which you already know, is in your in your career, in your life, in, in, your, in the development that you've gone through in, in the course of your life, who or what have been the most in, influential things in your life or people in your life? There have been many. I, I would say to you that the spiritual element for me, um, Dan and Phil Berrigan were folks from years ago, back in the 60s and 70s. They were Jesuit theologians who were real social, social activists who really made it so obvious to me that we're all in this together, that every one of us is in this together. And none of us is this isolated, separate being that we're all here to care for one another. We're all here on this planet together. That impacted me massively. When it came to um, becoming who I am, it's really many of the powerful people that I've met, Martin Luther King, that that I've read about or knew about, that have been really aware that life is so much more than what we see, that life is so much more than what we own that that value, that way of life that says, these are wonderful things. I love my home. I love my car. I love all of these things. But if I lose them tomorrow, life goes on. The gift of the journey is is really what this is all about. And I think they have all inspired me. Uh, many of the men and women I've seen who have had all kinds of opportunity and still remember to be kind to other folk. They inspire me continuously. Well, Dr. Dora, thanks so much for joining us today and talking through some of this stuff. It's really fascinating. Like I said, I love that intersection of the emotional, the spiritual, and the physical, right? Because I don't think people necessarily think about those things being related, right? They try to compartmentalize. And as you know, we can't do that. <laughs> and it, right. And you can't because it's so integrated. There's, there's, it's not boxes that are separate. There's all one being. And for me, the excitement of working with leaders is allowing them to really lead from that place of that inner knowing, leading from that place of, I am all of this. I am this emotional, spiritual, physical being. And my leadership is just an expression of who I am rather than a job I'm supposed to be doing. It's an expression of how I walk through the planet. You know, very different way of looking at leadership. Love it. Well, thanks so much, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this session today. If you want to reach out to Dr. Dorothy, uh, her contact information will be in the description box below on YouTube, and it'll be in the show notes in the podcast. Thanks, thanks all so much. Thanks, Dr. Dorothy, again, and we'll see you guys soon. Thank you all so much for listening to the Ikigai Leadership Podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a five-star review with comments to let me know what you thought. It really helps me keep on delivering valuable and relevant content to you all. And if you want to connect with me directly, please feel free to do so on my socials. That's at Drew B on Twitter, at Drew B on Instagram. 
and LinkedIn, it's linkedin.com slash in slash Thank you all so much. Take care, stay safe. Talk to you soon.